0: Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast for Netflix original true crime stories. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, your host. Each episode, we take a close-up look at a true crime narrative, documentary, or series, and I talk to the people who made them, diving deep into the backstories and getting answers to questions raised by what we just watched. On this week, the documentary, Why Did You Kill Me? I'm joined by the film's director and producer, Frederick Monk, Now a note to listeners, this episode does contain spoilers for Why Did You Kill Me? So make sure to watch the film and then listen on. After her daughter's murder, a mother uses the social networking site MySpace to find the people she believes are responsible. She creates a fake profile that leads to unexpected intimacy with the suspects, a key break in the case, and a dark revenge plot. The documentary, Why Did You Kill Me?, offers a gripping look at the effects of loss and the relationship between revenge, forgiveness, and the criminal justice system. My daughter Crystal and my son Justin get right up here. I look over, I see the gun. Bang, bang, bang. And they said, Crystal's been shot. The last thing I got to say to
1: her, I promised her that I was gonna get them. They're gonna pay. You know, the streets talk, like you just hear stuff. He had told me people involved had my space. Aunt belinda came up with the idea of making crystal in my space and i said i can get information for you
0: we decided to name her angel boy they just started responding ping 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 i was looking for a particularly violent gang gang members owe the price if they snitch everybody targeted us we're family that was it jamie's putting new messages i was just making them like me making them trust me before i started being like hey what kind of car do you drive I'd drive past their houses and go take pictures of the vehicles, and I think we found them. Belinda was just kind of a uh, psycho. This is going to screw stuff up. Now you start threatening them. We did things that you can't even think of. For those things, we get nightmares. I wanted him to hurt like we were hurting. I just want to know why. She had us, that's him. He was the only father figure I ever
1: had. They want to meet me. What do I do? And she goes, tell them yes.
0: Nobody's innocent here. Everything has a breaking point. I told them, okay, everybody, no violence. But in the back of my own mind, I still knew I was going to kill them. Fred Monk, welcome to You Can't Make This Up.
1: Thanks very much for having me. Hi, Rebecca.
0: I'm really interested in your background as a filmmaker. Can you just talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, it was... Um... I kind of fell into filmmaking largely by happenstance. Um, I graduated from college. I had no idea what to do. And I happened to see basically an ad um, for a job working for Roger Corman and his wife, Julie. Wow. Yeah, I took it. And this project actually (laughs) has its origins all the way back um, in those days working for the Cormans.
0: Tell me about why that is. How does it connect to that?
1: Yeah, so I was working for Julian Roger Corman, and they were, as, as they always are, and they continue to be, looking for stories and trying to figure out ways to make movies. And they were at that point interested in true crime a little bit. And we had an intern from Riverside, and she knew what we were looking for. And her dad actually had forwarded her a, a little snippet of an article and said, "Hey, this sounds really strange, and so, like something you might be interested in." And it was this was in 2011. The trial of Julio Heredia had just concluded. He had just been sentenced. And there was a very short article in the Press Enterprise, which is the local Riverside paper. Hmm. And it kind of summarized the sentencing. And it also had a little bit about this mother, Belinda, who had been involved in investigating her daughter's death and who had used MySpace to do it. And it, the, the article didn't have much detail, but it did have basically what is now the title of the film this, you know, the final thing that Belinda told. William, which is why did you kill me? And that one little piece of internet dialogue, as it were, just bowled me over and totally shocked and stunned me. And I have not been able to get the story out of my head um, ever since I read it.
0: Yeah, it's a really unlikely kind of like citizen investigator slash. I don't want to say vigilante because it's not exactly that, but it definitely is like a pre catfish catfishing story. Like there's a lot here, and I'm I'm curious when you first heard about it. So it was pre the era of catfish. Like what did you think of this idea of this woman? You know, taking it upon herself with the help of a child, by the way, (laughs) to go on the internet and, and try to suss some of this stuff out.
1: You know, I, I was quite blown away. As, you're, as you say, it was pre-Catfish. Um, these stories had started kind of appearing in the culture, but it was still the early days of social media. And, you know, it's still kind of the wild, wild west a little bit with regards to na- nowadays we all have these very set kind of guidelines of propriety about, oh, this is, what, this is how we use social media. This is what we do on it. This is what we don't. Oh, beware of the fact that you don't know who's on the other side of the screen. But back then none of that stuff had really fully been established and people were using these networks in a, a much more naive way. And and I, I'm part of that too. I'm part of I was a you know gangly awkward kid in high school when MySpace came out. Hmm. And I was just totally confused by this thing. I, I was like, oh, it's so strange. You can share such incredible levels of intimate detail with total strangers. That doesn't seem right or feel right to me. And uh i can, it continues to not feel right to me I'm, I'm i continue not to be an avid or fluid user of social media and i think part of that confusion i saw reflected in this you know in this story of just the, the absolute strangeness of there's a kind of a level of impersonating someone who is who was tragically killed on a social media platform and it's almost like a some kind of a séance or a way of communing with them or, and keeping them alive it's the, the strange slippages of identity that take place online for me where it was was one of the initial draws for sure
0: yeah you sounds like you grew up post AOL chat room era which was sort of the precursor yep. to MySpace and i remember MySpace definitely being a place where a it was a, it was a big chat you know, kind of community, those of us who, you know, Gen Xers who had been on the AOL forums, but also really our first opportunity to craft that internet image of ourselves. Like, I remember, you know, picking that first image, like, what do I want my profile picture to be? And it being like this hugely deliberate process, like it was going to be on my permanent record or something. It definitely was, was a disorienting moment and kind of a disorienting moment for someone to take it upon herself to investigate her daughter's murder. I'm curious, tell me a little bit about Belinda because she does kind of present herself as an unlikely heroine in the story, right?
1: I I think so, you know, for many reasons. Amongst them, the fact that she herself was not actually particularly internet savvy at the time or a user of MySpace, you know, she had heard of it, but really was not, not, it's not like she was on it or was quite familiar with it. I mean, Belinda, there is so much uh, to say about her Uh, I mean, she is first and foremost, I think her identity and the identity that comes across when you meet her is is as a mother, you know, she has uh, four kids and she's been very devoted to them throughout her entire life. And I think that is also at the core of why she did what she did in her family. There's a real sense of everyone has each other's backs. And if anything happens to one of them, your, all of them will respond. And I think, um, that's kind of what happened with Crystal. There was a sense immediately of my duty is to go above and beyond any, e- even any reasonable level to find justice for my daughter. You know, what that means shifts throughout the movie. But it's certainly, it is this very fundamental question of I think a lot of people who have children, you imagine like the lengths to which you might go if something were to happen to your child. And I think Belinda is proof of that some people will basically never stop and will go to any length. Right. Um to to kind of seek some sense of justice.
0: I want to hear about your choice to use the miniature models of the street where the crime occurred instead of using reenactments, instead of using animation, instead of using, you know, a graphic map with a line drawn on it as we see in so many true crime documentaries. Tell me about that choice. I loved it. I'll just be completely transparent with you. It was creative and it also for me gave the people in the story an opportunity to interact with the moment in a way that just hearing them talk about it wouldn't be the same. You know what I mean?
1: Absolutely. Um, Well, first of all, thank you. It's one of my favorite parts of the film. It was one of the most fun things to make and then shoot. So the origin of the miniature comes from a line that Belinda said in an interview, which is that it's not actually in the film anymore. But she said, when I think about that night, I see it from above. So in her mind, I think when she thinks about kind of the nights of February 24th, 2006, when her daughter was killed, and it was an event that she witnessed, she sees it kind of floating from above. And so this was just an opportunity to kind of literalize that perspective. But also, as you say, to present the space, instead of going kind of with traditional reenactments, which I just think on one hand are just a little bit cliched, or we've seen so many of them that maybe they're not so interesting. There's a chance here because it's Belinda gets to interact with the model because it's her hands moving things through the space. There's a chance to represent the subjectivity of memory, the fact that this space for her, you know, it's some it's somewhere between a memory and a nightmare and it's hers, it's her experience of that night. And so we thought that her moving the pieces was a great and natural way to allow her to really have ownership of the memory and to show us kind of what happened. There's also the, a kind of a, a fun little bit of I think foreshadowing which is that this idea of kind of Belinda looming over the scene, manipulating the pieces. Um, Mm. When I think of revenge, what what it is on a very basic level, I, I often think that is revenge is a restaging of a trauma, except that you take the pieces and you rearrange them so that you are the person who is no longer the victim. You are the person who is now in control of that trauma. And I think in some ways that's what we see Belinda do in the film.
0: That actually brings me to something else I wanted to ask you about, which is your extraordinary access to so many of the players in this story, not just Belinda, but you have Julio's sister. I mean, you really have everybody that that can tell this in the most intimate, best possible way. A lot of these people are also carrying a lot of pain. And Mm. I'm, I'm curious about how you got the access and then how you got these incredibly candid interviews.
1: Yeah, you know, that was a process that took many, many years. Um... As you say, there we do have a pretty wide range of access. We have a wide range of perspectives in the film, which was really, really important because a tragedy like this ripples through a community in an incredibly complex way. And it's not just the victim's family who is profoundly affected. Although, of course, you know no one is more profoundly affected than them, but there are all these other folks um, affected. And so it was really kind of boots on the ground journalistic type work that got us that access. It was just years of reaching out to people and trying to kind of show them respect. And and, and my intentions as a filmmaker, which were really to listen and to try to give them the space to tell their side of the story. A lot of people said no, but we were really fortunate with some that said yes. And I think part of it, uh, particularly if you think about people connected to the 5150 gang in various ways or connected to people like Julio, Part of it is also the fact that I think very rarely in their own lives have people come to them and ask their opinion mm. um, or ask them to share their side of the story. And so I think just that gesture, actually, you'll find that oftentimes people are, they they have something to say, they, but they've never been asked or they've no one has ever done the work to track them down and say, hey, I, I'm here totally respectfully and I just would love to know what your experience of this event was. And to your question about trauma, that those interviews were often very, very tricky. And we just tried to re- proceed as respectfully as we could and give people space and try to really empower them to feel like they were running the interview. And I was just a guy sitting there occasionally prompting them or asking them annoying questions. Hmm. But, you know, that's a whole kind of art form unto itself. And I think it is, it's really tricky with subject matter like this because to engage with things that are really traumatic is oftentimes to kind of trigger something resembling a re-traumatization. And so you have to be really, really careful with how far you push people and how you conduct your interviews.
0: Belinda talks about, you know, her family's kind of mistrust of outsiders generally, but especially in their interactions with the police. You have this very interesting dual perspective on the police investigation. You have Detective Wheeler basically describing the family as somewhat uncooperative. And then you have Belinda talking about her family's interactions with police, uh, not being pleasant, you know, not trusting them. Where do you land on this? Is Detective Wheeler acting in good faith? Is the family acting in good faith? Or is it just a complicated situation that is born of the circumstances in which this family was living before this contact with police? What do you think?
1: Yeah, you're talking kind of about the that very initial pushback from Belinda's family to the police, or the sense that they were being targeted off the bat. I think both parties are kind of talking in completely in good faith. One has to remember that right when this shooting occurs— Detective Wheeler was the detective assigned, but kind of in the hours and even days afterwards, there are dozens of detectives and police officers who are doing the initial work on this case. There are you know many people in multiple locations um many people being interviewed all at the same time and I think when you have people like who have you know past histories of incarceration and people find out that they might be involved that, that they were in a car that was shot you know it's it's very natural that police officers um, kind of change their tact of questioning and perhaps become extra suspicious. And I think that's what happened in this case. You know, again, that wasn't actually Detective Wheeler. Those were most of that kind of questioning was done by other police officers, but I don't think it's uncommon. And so I think it's probably fair to say, you know, Belinda's statement saying that it felt like they were targeting us or they were going at us. The police was coming at us harder than we deserved as a family of victims is probably exactly right.
0: It's really interesting because I think that people do underestimate the degree to which people don't want to have contact with the police ever. I mean, there's a a big thing that happens when people watch true crime documentaries. They're like, why didn't they just go to the police? And people don't do that. I think that there's a sense that you would do that, but, you know, they don't, right? (laughs) That's just something that I, I found over and over again in my own reporting.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's one of these things, it's a little bit of the, there's a little bit of bias that comes from whatever community one might be coming from. You don't realize that there, there are other attitudes towards the police and in many, many communities throughout the United States. Yeah, the police, it's not, they are not just the default good guys who are there to help. They're people who have very different relationships with them. And that was part of what I thought was always so fascinating about Belinda and her family. They're victims, of course, but they're also in so many different ways. They're not your typical set of victims. They have a whole other – they live by a different code than many people, and they just sit in the world in a different way than many, many folks.
0: Do you know what sort of shifted her take on the police investigation? Was it just time? Was it seeing that they were acting in good faith, uh, which is why she ultimately did help them?
1: Yeah, I think that's basically it. a, A huge piece of that is Rick Wheeler himself. You know, as you can kind of see in the film, there's a kind of Rick is in a bit of an emotional counterbalance to Belinda. He's very composed. He's very decent. Cool he's customer.
0: Very, he's
1: <laughs> a cool customer, right? He was kind of born to be a detective in many respects. And I think it was just through dealing with Belinda over time and him, him showing her that he was going to follow up on the leads that she gave him and that he was always going to keep his cool and be respectful. I think eventually she really came to trust and ultimately kind of love him. I think these days, Belinda, she will uh, never stop singing the praises of Rick Wheeler.
0: Wow. There's also a really interesting storyline in your film about the 5150 gang. And there's a duality, too, in the way that the community views them. The police describe the gang as violent and confrontational, uh, responsible for lots of murders. But you have Mario, a former gang member, saying that it's a group of, you know, relatives backing each other up in in a very dangerous place and that it's, you know, something that he needed to feel safe. And there's like a little bit of surprise at the way that they're viewed from the outside outside. What do you make of of that difference in perspective?
1: Yeah, I think it's an incredibly critical point to make. And, you know, just first off, I think so often with these types of true crime films, you end up relying on a kind of police perspective as being the definitive kind of explanation of what's going on. And it was really important for us in this film to challenge or at least to offer other perspectives as early as possible. And so Mario does this great job of explaining The gang from his point of view, which is kind of a point of view from inside of this organization itself. And again, I think it's a case where both parties are talking in faith. I think certainly are in good faith. Certainly both of them are, their perspectives are shaded by their own experiences. But I think Mario is being legitimate when he says that his experience of this gang was really kind of as family. And it's a bunch of essentially male cousins and friends who all came up at around, you know, who all happened to be around the same age. And in Riverside, if if you have a large group of young boys like that, or, you know, young men, it's very easy for them to be interpreted as a gang. And it's very easy for them to kind of fall into that lifestyle. And particularly too, I think there is often a sense of, as is covered in the events of the film, people are acting out of what they think of as self-defense, There's a sense that things can be hard and people may be attacked and you need to stand up for yourself or counterattack or in some ways, it's these cycles of kind of revenge or or self-defense that are at a lot of the core uh, of certainly the events of the film.
0: I'm just so curious about the creation of this profile and the way the profile looks and sounds and feels and how young Jamie was when she was helping Belinda Make it. And I felt sort of, you know, the closeness of the family as being part of that process too. I mean, Jamie is still so affected by this story, even though she, you know, she was a kid at the time. Um, Can you just talk about how that profile was made? Did you learn about that process and what they talked about when they were doing this?
1: You know, I think it was one of these things, it was an idea that developed through time you know, once they got this tip that some of the people who might be responsible had profiles in MySpace and they were directed towards them, you know, they started looking at the profiles and they started thinking. And I think it was kind of a literal light bulb moment between Belinda and Jamie to say, oh, hey, if we wanted to get even more information, could we make a profile and start interacting with these guys? The actual kind of construction of that profile and the artifice, again, a collaboration between the two of them. I think Belinda was very good at helping with some of the top-line strategy. And then Jamie, who was about to turn 14, who was this expert on MySpace, was able to bring in all of the, the really savvy technical expertise. And she was able to make the profile look and feel real and you know set the fonts and the background in exactly the way that a young woman might have them set and change them every day to make it seem extra accurate and go to all these lengths to kind of give some sense of her to these profiles, um, mm-hmm. which was obviously, it was, that was critical to what they were trying to do. It was really important to them that these profiles feel real.
0: Yeah. How long did they keep up this ruse with all of these, you know, complicated conversations going on online?
1: You know, the actual catfishing operation only lasted a few months. Hmm. It wasn't that long, but during that period, there were the the communication was very, very intense, and I think there's some sense of this in the film, but the reality is that a lot of it was very kind of banal chatter and conversation between young people online. A lot of "Hey, what's up?" "Oh, not much. How you doing?" "Good. How are you?" "Fine." These kinds of exchanges, and then every once in a while, they would either they would get into a place of greater intimacy and they'd start exchanging greater details, um, and then on one fateful instance, they actually got a really critical piece of information that they were looking for, which is who drove this white Ford expedition.
0: Right. I was very interested in sort of the, um, the willingness to follow like the romance storyline. It just seems so easy and available and open and such an, like an easy entree. But even back then with the naivete around social media, were you surprised that they were able to pull that off so convincingly? I mean, it really seemed like he thought she was going to show up at that party or that he was going to go pick her up.
1: I think in some ways it doesn't surprise me at all just because of how early it was in social media and the fact that these were, you know, someone like William, he was, he was 18 years old and Belinda and Jamie took their cues from, the profiles of some of the 5150 members that they were able to look at. And it was clear that amongst other things, and again, there's a level of performance going on on their part too with their kind of social media profiles, but it was clear that they projected an image of kind of being interested in having fun, you know, and partying and that they were, many of them were also really interested in girls and women and dating and that kind of thing. And so I think in some ways, if they were trying to give, someone like William, what they thought he wanted. Um, and to an extent, I think they were right. Now, you know, it's also really interesting to think about all of the, the interactions are really from Jamie and Belinda's perspective, because that's who we had to interview and that's who we, who we based the exchanges off of. But from William's perspective, you know, was he in deep love with this profile of Angel or was this kind of just a girl he was talking to online, perhaps one of Many w- girls, you know, it's very hard to say. We don't have his. It's that
0: one. It's, it's probably that one.
1: <laughs> probably so. We never got to interview him, so we don't know, but it's probably the latter, I think. So, again, it, a lot of it is colored by, you know, everyone's position in the story.
0: Do, do you know what, how, to what extent Jamie was like sitting with Belinda when these conversations were happening? Did Belinda just sort of take it over and, and, you know, behave as if she were her daughter? Or was Jamie sitting there and saying, like, a young person would say this, a young person would say this?
1: They would sometimes I think be in the same room or they would communicate about what they were trying to do. Oftentimes too, they even in that early period, I think they would sometimes just both go online independently of one another and continue these conversations and then they would have to like, you know, log on, see what the other person had said and continue on. And then towards the end of the story, you know, Jamie talks about how difficult it was for her. When I was messaging as Angel, pretending to be her. Was really, really keeping her alive in my heart. I was with her again all night long. Stainably. And how she basically, after she got the kind of this massive tip around William Satella's expedition, not long after that, she kind of gave it up because it was too difficult. And then at that point, Belinda took over and was the sole person operating the MySpace accounts.
0: Hmm. And Belinda had a plan uh that she ended up not following through with. Like she wanted to shoot some of these gang members and do actual, like, physical vengeance. Do you know? Uh Did you get any insight from her into when she kind of changed her mind and 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 to, decided to go down a different road?
1: Why Belinda didn't go through with it is a really complicated question. I think in many ways there was always this invocation of Crystal and Crystal's spirit, and she was o- constantly being reminded of that. In part by literally by Angel's photo, and but also just in going through the course of this experience, it's all it all connects to Crystal for her. And as she always says, Crystal was not a violent person and would have never sought revenge. So for her, it was a way of I think in some ways honoring or respecting Crystal's spirit. And I think too, and another thing about Belinda that's a really wonderful quality in a in a subject is that she can be. Yes, she can be very emotional, and of course this, this, why would anyone not be incredibly emotional around this kind of subject matter? But she can also, she is also incredibly reflective and she has an ability to oftentimes step back from that emotion and think about things more objectively. I have to learn to forgive myself.
0: And that's harder than forgiving Julio Heredia, it really is.
1: And I think for her, she also realized this plan would have never ended well for her. And it was probably, it was not the right thing to do. And it just would have ended terribly for herself and her family. And she ended up giving Detective Wheeler the profiles to keep herself in check. There was this sense of, this is really spinning out of control. I need to figure out a way to gain control again. And maybe one way to do that is to actually remove the tool of these profiles.
0: Now, there was no connection at all between Crystal and Julio, her murderer, right? No. It was very interesting to me. uh, I just kept thinking about this, you know, knowing that it was, you know, basically a a situational crime, right? I mean, you don't want to say wrong place, wrong time. It's it's not quite exactly how anything works. But, you know, given that she had no connection uh, with her killer, that Belinda kind of ended up inadvertently building a connection between her daughter and the people sort of around her killer. And I don't know. I just found that sort of poignant in a way that this completely random wrong event that she would use personal connection to find. I think it just says a lot about her and and who she is. And it's not just about her being, you know, a sneaky catfish, if that makes sense.
1: (sighs) You're so right. I think it says it speaks to a couple things. One is also this the strangeness of the internet. I think in some ways, as we've come to more broadly recognize as a culture, the internet I think can draw the darkness out of us. And when you don't have to actually interact with the person on the other side of the screen, you may tend to treat them with less humanity because to you they may be an abstraction. At the same time the internet for a whole generation of people has been this gateway to incredible intimacy and sharing, oftentimes with strangers, um, sharing incredibly personal things. And I think as any Zenga blogger or other folks might tell you, sometimes it's much easier to be intimate and to share with people you don't know than it is to share with people that are very close to you. And it's true that in the case of Belinda, this intimacy, I think, took on an extra level of intensity. And there was a real sense, I think, you know, she doesn't end up going through with an act of physical revenge. But when she tells William via MySpace, why did you kill me? You know, that is an act of emotional revenge. Yeah. She, you know, she and I think to her mind, she is trying to make William feel something of the way that she felt in the night that she lost her daughter. You know, how does this is how it feels to lose someone that you love. Yeah. Um, and so that, I think, was a major driving force behind the intense intimacy of the exchanges.
0: Now, you started working on the story a really long time ago, as, as you've said. And while you've been working on it, you know, there's been this huge surge in the popularity of true crime and true crime documentaries and true crime podcasts and true crime films. And this is your first film in this genre. Uh, how do you feel about suddenly, after working on the story for so long, being seen as a true crime filmmaker?
1: Oh, what a great question! I I have very complicated feelings about the genre of true crime. As you say, you know, when this film started, it was not this giant sub industry that it is now. Certainly, you know, true crime stories have always been popular, going you know going all the way back to the days of like the local papers, police blotter, or something like that. But it's really tricky. I think that true crime stories can you know, they've always fascinated me. Um, that's part of why I was fascinated in this story. There's an immediate way that they can often cut very quickly to very key and core questions of human experience. You know, how what do we value when the stakes are literally life and death? And how do we make decisions with those kinds of stakes as well? But I think it can get tricky when when one is turning events that are almost always incredibly tragic into entertainment. And particularly if it is entertainment only for entertainment's sake, you know, that certainly gives me pause. And so, For this film in general, and I think for the kinds of true crime films that I like to myself watch and enjoy, I I always try to look for things that really use the space to ask important questions and to, to delve into questions of the criminal justice system and really kind of justify themselves that are not simply there to deliver sensational, gory details or things like that. So that's part of it. And I think with this film in general, one of our missions was to, we knew that it was a true crime film. We knew that, that people would engage with it on those terms. So we wanted to use some of the tropes of true crime, but ultimately try to also use those tropes to subvert or challenge some of the conventions um, of the genre. Um, and so that was a that was a really, really important part of the mission of the film and, and part of why I, I felt like the film itself was a kind of worthy experiment.
0: I would love to hear about an example of a thing that you were doing that was intentionally a true crime trope that you then used a little bit differently, or used as a lure to some other to some other point in the in the film. Can you tell me about one of those choices?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we touched on one, which is say, for example, um, bringing Mario into the film very early. So Detective Wheeler gives a very good summary of his kind of view on what the fifty one fifty gang was. Uh, I think in a normal film, you might have just continued on with the story, but in our film, it was really important that we bring in another character kind of immediately to offer another perspective on this gang and to, as a way of signaling, okay, this is, this film is not simply a whodunit that follows a police investigation. We're going to try to take a really multi-perspectival look at the events of this loss and tragedy. Hopefully it is still, the information is presented in a compelling enough way to pull a viewer through, but we're not going to only hear about it from kind of one side or one perspective.
0: Hmm. Now, with stories like this, there are always lots and lots of details that either the writer or the person putting together the film falls in love with, wants the audience to know, but ultimately can't make it into the final product. I'm wondering, is there some aspect of this case or this story that, you know, you would have loved to have included, but either didn't fit or you had to cut for time? I love hearing about those pieces that, you know, maybe we didn't see.
1: Gosh, yeah, there there are so many scenes and moments that I love that didn't make it into the final cut. The first thing that comes to mind was the scene that we cut that was originally the very opening scene of the film, which was basically just a monologue from Manuel Lemus. Manuel, as you can tell, is, he's incredibly articulate and reflective and really philosophical about the events um, depicted in the film and how they fit into the broader course of his life. And he had this kind of amazing monologue where he was someone who was raised in a really religious household. And from the jump, Manny, I think, was a questioning person. And so he felt that in some ways he had joined a gang and he had sought out a lifestyle that to him involved danger and also represented in some way an alternative to the life of the church as a way of testing God. And he basically ends by saying, and, you know, and I didn't want all this to happen just to get my answer. Right. And so that at one point that was kind of the opening of the film that, you know, that really set the stakes of the story is kind of almost literally life, the universe and everything is this really existential question for this one person in the film. I know he didn't mean to do all those things he did, like how everyone in this world doesn't mean to do it.
0: Now, Belinda at one point in the film says, you know, revenge and justice are about the same thing, but the only difference is that justice won't put you in prison. Um, Is that what you want viewers to take away from the film, or are there other things you also want viewers like me to walk away with that we didn't start with when we started watching it?
1: That is one of my favorite things that she said, and I do think that's a really important takeaway of the film. We see Belinda pursue and consider kind of revenge in cold blood, for a part of the story. And then that comes to a conclusion. And then we shift to seeing Belinda seek justice through the criminal justice system. And what is kind of unusual, um, or in, some, in many ways not unusual, is that, again, she's essentially posed the same question, right? The state of California is willing to pursue the death penalty against Tulio Heredia. So again, there's this question of, do you want to have this person killed? Except it is now being that option is being presented through the criminal justice system and it's kind of codified and justified and made more socially acceptable by the criminal justice system. And, you know, as we know in the film, she, she says ultimately no to that question. And it's a really important moment for her a reflection of her ability to empathize with Julio and also just her putting a bit of a, uh, an end to this cycle of revenge Belinda, in her own way, tell, is telling us a little bit of the story of the crim- of the history of the criminal justice system, right? It's this mm. at one point, justice was meted out by revenge, and then, you know, down the road, it became kind of formalized as the system of law and order. But at its core, there remain these questions of revenge and punitive justice, which I think are really really important to reflect on.
0: So what about some of the other takeaways from your film? What have you been thinking about?
1: in the case of this film, we made a very deliberate decision to try to let people tell their stories and to kind of really listen to the characters and let them tell you what happened to them and to let their experiences speak and to then let an audience process those experiences and make up their own mind about what happened and what the takeaways are. So I think first and foremost, my hope is that you take away these kind of amazing and remarkable characters and then you let them kind of sit in your mind and you think about them and return to them. Because, you know, we very deliberately, we didn't include experts or talking heads or sociologists or people like that who might come in and read the story from the inside or tell you what to think about certain things in the film. We really wanted to let the characters talk and we really wanted to let an audience make up its own mind. So that, so, so really, first and foremost, what we're trying to give you is almost this, it's this grain of sand in which you can see a, a bigger world. But how you see that bigger world and the conclusions you draw are kind of very much up to you, the audience.
0: I couldn't help but wonder and ask the question, uh, and this is what I would ask Belinda, I guess, if I were talking to her, if, you know, her feelings of not forgiveness, but certainly mercy toward Julio were somewhat driven by the fact that by the time he was arrested, he had his own family. You know, we hear that he's living this whole new life. And I don't know, that's just something I wondered about whether or not that was a factor there, because obviously family is very central to her, right?
1: You're 100% right. He picked up on something that was, I think, was important to her thinking, Belinda loves children, and these questions are still very much alive for her. There's some, there are things that she continues to struggle with and mull over. And in the case of Julio and William, you know, she was aware that they had kids. And that was part of what changed her, at least it fed into her understanding of them as human beings and elicited her sympathy. Absolutely. Um, at the same time, you know, it remains a really complicated question. I don't think she would ever say that she's arrived at forgiveness it's something that she's considered. I think in moments she's been able to get there, but then in other moments, the trauma returns and some of the feelings that you see in the film return. And I think that's one of the other big takeaways. These events never end. A trauma like this, it can never be concluded. Even if you go to the ends of your abilities as Belinda did to seek justice for your daughter, there may be some kind of Positive feeling that goes along with that, but ultimately the trauma remains and none of it can kind of repair that. There's nothing to repair that initial trauma.
0: She makes me think of something that I used to hear growing up, which is that uh, forgiveness is a choice, not an obligation. And that sometimes not forgiving is also healing in its own way. I mean, I just couldn't help but think of that when I was watching her in this film. Um, the documentary is Why Did You Kill Me? Fred Monk, it was such a pleasure talking to you about it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rebecca. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to director and producer Frederick Monk. For more of my takes on true crime, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please subscribe to, rate, and review this show, and share it with friends. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for our next episode on The Sons of Sam, a descent into darkness. You can't make this up as a production of Netflix. Our music is by Hansdale Sue, and our producer is Shayna Deloria. I'm Rebecca Lavoy. Thanks so much for listening.